Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. So we'll jump right in. At the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire was massive. And this is one of those moments I wish I could pull a map up and show you because it was huge. The Roman Empire completely surrounded the Mediterranean Sea, right? They controlled everything from modern day Spain, France, Italy to Greece, Turkey, and Syria. Then it wrapped around the Holy Land and even controlled much of North Africa, right? Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. It was huge. The Roman Empire had a thing for conquering foreign governments and taking control of their land. From, get this, from 625 BC to 476 AD. So for over a thousand years, the Roman Empire's influence and power was astonishing. Now this is cool. In those thousand years of power and expansion, there is a 200-year window that historians refer to as the Pax Romana, Latin for Roman peace. It was the golden age of Rome, right? A time marked with prosperity, order, stability, and peace. From the reign of Caesar Augustus in 27 BC, lasting until the death of Marcus Aurelius, in 180 AD, there was a widespread peace achieved through Roman power. Now, if you're connecting the dots, you might have picked up Jesus is born in the first 30 years of this golden age of peace. In fact, you might find it interesting, some historians have argued that the Pax Romana made possible the, the rapid and far-reaching spread of the church. They've argued that if the Jesus movement started 500 years earlier or 500 years later, it would have struggled to gain the same right, uh, speed. Personally, I might agree to disagree, but that's just me. I think when spirit catches fire, it catches fire. Doesn't need Roman roads to spread. But nonetheless... Jesus is born this uniquely peaceful period in history. And so why all of this historical introduction? You see our gospel writer for this season, Luke, well, he's a real person writing about real people to real people who existed in time and space. I know, believe it or not. So, Let's try something. It rarely gets read, but before we dive in today's text, I want to read the introduction. It's just a couple verses that Luke writes at the beginning of his gospel. So join me, starting in the first verse of the first chapter of Luke. He begins, Many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. And side note, I've always wondered, like, how many people 
Right? How many people have already written a gospel? Is it like Matthew, Mark, John many? Or like many that we don't know about yet many? Can't get stuck there, but it's an interesting question nonetheless. He continues, the many others used what the original eyewitnesses and servants of the world handed down to us. Now, after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you have received. Luke isn't messing around. This isn't a fanatical religious undertaking for him. He's a doctor. He's done his research and has chosen to take time out of his day job to carefully investigate and to write an orderly account of Jesus. And boy, does he write. 19,482 words, Luke's gospel is the longest And that doesn't include the additional 18,000 words that he wrote for the book of Acts. Days upon days upon days of handwriting. This is a serious, time-consuming undertaking. Which leads us to our reading this morning. As we join churches around the world reading the words of Luke. From his third chapter, starting in the first verse. He writes, in the 15th year of the rule of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was ruler over Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler over Eturia and Trachonitis, that frog in my throat, and Licinius was the ruler over Abilene during the high priesthood of of Annas and, and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And we're going to pause there for a second before we read the rest of it. Like we said, Luke isn't messing around. He's making sure that we know exactly when in time and space this took place. He, He names Roman emperors, the local rulers, even the high priests. And he has to do this because he's writing this 50 to 80 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But I think there's more to it as well. It'd be like me saying, in the eighth year of Barack Obama, when Bruce Rauner was governor over Illinois and Randy Holtgren represented the 14th district in Congress during the reign of Pope Francis, with Rizzo on first and Brian on third, the commissioner's trophy came to the Cubs of Chicago. (laughs) It was a good year. Yes, Luke is setting up some historic context, but he's also name dropping, right? He's he's name dropping. He writes a 59 word run on sentence that names all the most powerful men in the world. These are the guys. These are the guys responsible for the Pax Romana. These are men of peace. Or were they? Now we don't have time to look at all of them, but I thought it'd be fun to dig deeper into one. So how about Herod? Herod the Great. 
He comes up in Luke's Gospels all the time, and so let's see what kind of man he was, how he contributed to Roman peace. Herod the Great was born into a wealthy and politically connected family, made even stronger by strategic marriages. By the age of 36, so still quite young, I'm told, he became the unchallenged ruler of all of Judea, from which he built magnificent fortresses, splendid cities, a great palace in Herodium, and he even rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, right? Which was probably one of his most grandiose creations of which the massive outer court, get this, measured 35 acres, and it can still be seen today, parts of it. I bet some have seen it. Sounds like a pretty high-functioning dude, right, with limitless ambition. Sounds like the kind of person you would want to put in charge of things. Unfortunately, there's a dark side, a dark streak to Herod's character that comes up as he gets older. Whether it was this insatiable need for more and more power, or it might have been declining mental health, Herod becomes paranoid, jealous, violent. He divorces his first wife and sends her and the kids away, which ends up being a pretty good deal because he murders his next wife, along with their two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother. In total, he has 10 wives, kills two of them, 14 children, kills at least three of them. Nearing the end of his life, he alters his will three times, and then out of nowhere kills his firstborn son, who was to be his heir, and who was named after his own father, Antipater. Shortly before his death, it is said that he ordered the murder of all boys two years and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem, and then following an unsuccessful attempt at suicide, Herod eventually dies of natural causes. Yikes, right? Like that's some Game of Thrones, Joffrey Lannister, like crazy stuff. And they called that the Pax Romana? Those were the golden years in Rome. And so we go back to our text. It is in that kind of peace during the reign of those kind of men that we read God's word came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And do you see what's happening? Can you smell what Luke's up to here? He goes on and on about this list of of A-list powerful men, and yet, and yet the word of God comes to John. John, like we don't even know John's last name, John. So we just call him John the Baptist, John. And yet the word of God came to John. Then despite the fact that Herod built these magnificent city centers, the word of God didn't show up in one of his stadiums, right? Or one of his fortresses and palaces. To those who have ears to hear God's word didn't even show up at the newly built temple. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, 
in the wilderness. It might as well have read during the reign of some really powerful men, God's word came to a nobody in the middle of nowhere. Do you hear the subversive power play that Luke's playing with us here? Let's keep reading. We're gonna go back into verse three. So John went throughout the region of the Jordan River, calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive them. This is just as it was written in the scroll of the word of the prophet Isaiah. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The crooked will be made straight, the rough places made smooth, and all humanity, AKA everyone, 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 will get to see God's salvation. Now friends, that is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So what Luke's up to here, he's masterfully juxtaposing powerful men in charge with the powerless prophet of God. The powerful represent the world as it is, the world as we know it to be, with all of its political, military, economic, and even religious systems and and people of power. These people, these systems, often believe they already embody the will of God, that they speak for God, that they function as God to the masses whom they control. They don't have a need for a new word of God because it's so often their word that really matters. The powerless prophet, on the other hand, has no such misconceptions or distractions. Those who find themselves in the wilderness often wait eagerly for the word of God. Right, because their vulnerable and disadvantaged place in the world creates in them a receptiveness that can't be replicated. For one, such as John, the wilderness is not his failure to succeed. It's not his undoing. It's exactly where he wants to be to remain connected to God. From the beginning of the beginning to the prophets of old, even Jesus himself, people find God in the wilderness. And so in an age of earthly power, an age of imperial expansion, God's word came to a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And there is nothing more Christmas than that. A baby born in a barn to an unwed teen who full term travels for days to register, to pay taxes, to an emperor who's controlling her ancestors' land, to then fleeing to Egypt to keep her newborn son alive from the rage of a tyrant who's known for killing his own children. It's a radical reversal on what equates power on what equates peace, on the value of our seasons in the wilderness. Christmas, it's cute, 
right? It's cute with the trees and the angels and all of that stuff, but it's also radical. The birth of a little baby pushes Herod the Great to his tipping point. And this little baby grows up to be a street preacher. He grows up to be one who teaches that peace, that true peace cannot be gained through political power, right, or military victories, but through turning the other cheek, through forgiving 70 times seven, through blessing, not cursing, through putting ourselves last, not first, through giving, not taking, through love. And my friends, that is how the crooked places of the world can be made straight again. That is how the rough places can be made smooth again. And I know this sermon has been a little more historical and and theological than than most, but it's wildly human too, isn't it? we, We all know the power game. We all know the temptation to to put ourselves on top, to create peace through persuasion and control. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or with whom you spend your time. We all know that game, right? It's people showing up to school board meetings just to flex, just to be bigger, louder, as if their public display of anger is somehow gonna usher in peace. It's spouses using blame, shame, threats of ending a relationship just to to regain a sense of control, to shut down anything that they'd rather avoid. It's people using big words, fancy words, words they once heard someone else use to, to gain intellectual power over a conversation, to put an I'm smarter than you stamp on the end of an argument. It's people who think it's their God-given call to make sure their favorite politician or political party gains power. As if that's the game God plays, as if that's the thing that keeps Jesus up at night. Excuse my directness, but might we all just stop it? Might we all just give up the ways of Herod give up the ways of earthly power? Might we all give up the self-promoting on every platform we can get our hands on? Might we actively choose to play a different game? Might we choose kindness over coercion, right? Peace over power. Might we find God in our humbling wilderness experiences? If it's power that you're after, good luck. And say hi to Herod on the way out. Just kidding, just kidding. But if it's peace you're looking for, take a deep breath. Find yourself some wilderness. It should surprise no one that some of the most influential spiritual voices in the the early church were simply referred to as the desert fathers and the desert mothers. People who fled the distractions of power, money, city for a life of simple faith and peace. And I know we can't all just do that. 
We can't all just flee the system that we find ourselves in, and that's okay. But we can find someone who is, and we can listen to them. We can think critically about the voices that we choose to elevate, about the type of people that we choose to emulate with a keen awareness that the true gems of faith and life are likely to come from the voices of people who will never be trending by earthly standards. God's word didn't come through Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Herod the Great, Philip, Lysanus, Annas, or Caiaphas. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and God has been using nobodies from nowhere ever since. Because the way of peace doesn't need earthly power to change everything. And so I encourage you to do yourself a favor, do this Christmas season a favor, and just don't play that game. Don't play that game with your spouse, don't play that game at work. When pushed, poked, prodded to to assert your own power, just don't. Just don't play it. Surround yourself with people that aren't scrambling to be heard, aren't climbing to the top, aren't always needing to be right about everything. That game stinks. Know that it doesn't matter who you are where you went to school, how much you make for a living, it doesn't matter how far along life's journey you may think you are. During the reign of some really powerful men, God's word came to a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And thanks be to God, because that means God can can even use me. That means God can use you too. Amen. Amen.